Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to Thread, episode 115. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Thread is a podcast for those who understand that God has called them to be agents of change, whether that's in their family or whether it's in the, uh, the university or the high school that you go to or in the workplace or you're in a nation that does not understand the truth about God. And you have been called and you have been sent out to be a light to the people around you. And so what we do is we look verse by verse through the scriptures and uh, we've been in the book of Acts for quite a while and we look for lessons to guide us as leaders and as people who want to be agents of change and help us do a better job at, at that. And today's story is from Acts chapter 17, verses uh, 16 through 34, and it's the famous passage where Paul goes up on Mars Hill in the city of Athens. Now, this is one of the most commented upon stories from the record of the early missionary experience of the Apostle Paul. In this story, he breaks with his usual pattern of keeping close to the Jewish roots of Christianity, and instead of hanging out in the synagogue and moving among the Jewish people trying to help them understand the truth of the gospel, we see a fearless Paul out in the streets without his team. He's alone in Athens. His team has been left behind in the cities where uh, they endured such persecution, and so Paul, being the lightning rod for this persecution, uh, wisely moved away from the people, and things settled down, and he left Silas and Timothy behind, and they are ministering to the churches, and uh, they're, they're on their way to him. But Paul is in Athens. He's all alone, and he's in the great home of Greek philosophy, Plato, Sophocles, He's in the Ivy League of his day, the epicenter of thought for the known world. And you know, uh, even in the world today, and it's always been that way, we have these centers for thought. And uh, just like there are places that are centers for manufacturing, and they make cars and airplanes and things, there are centers that develop thinking for the whole world. And the new thoughts come out of these thought centers and quite often, that is uh, the places where you find the great universities. It's also certain publications that are not popular publications, but they are they're deep thinking. Today, we've got internet places like, like TED. If you've never listened to a TED talk, I mean, you're in for a treat. Go to TED.com and just check out all the different things and uh, some brilliant people uh, bringing us the latest, uh, at least the latest that they're able to talk about uh, in terms of technology and social thinking. And, you know, by and large, Christians stay away from such places. And honestly, for the most part, we're not, we're not up to the game. We're not at their level intellectually because, sadly, church can be just so shallow that we get fed week by week. And, the, you know, the kind of Christianity that is popular and the kind of preaching that is popular is, um, you know, the New Testament calls it tickling your ears. It's things you love to hear. 
So it's how God loves you and how God wants to bless you and how to be more happy and how to have more material things and how to have a more effective life. And, you know, we just listen to that day after day, but we don't often wrestle with serious thinking in church. And uh, it's, it's affecting us. It's affecting us in the culture because we don't have many people who can go to the Ivy League and who can, uh, you know, dialogue and, and have an honest intellectual debate. And what's happening to us is not only are we losing our, uh, our influence over formerly Christian cultures, we're actually losing our Christian children once they enter the university experience and they get confronted by the arrogance of Antichrist in their professors, and they, they've never heard thinking like that before, and they get swayed by it, and they find these people so brilliant, and they don't understand that there really is an answer, that we follow a very reasonable faith, and there is an answer for every objection. They don't know the people who can, who can you know, bring those answers to them, and so they just get swept away by the force of their professors' personalities. And, you know, sometimes there are people that are in the university systems that just delight to smash the uh, naive faith of little Christians that come their way. Uh, We have friends who've gone through just heartache. You know, they've given their whole life to ministry, and they raised uh, their child, and, and their daughter went away to university and in just a short amount of time came home and told them that she repudiated everything they've ever given their life for. She does not believe in Jesus, doesn't even believe in God, that it's all just ignorance you know, on their part, and she just turned her back on everything that they had raised her to believe. And they said, what happened to you? And she said, university is what happened to me. So may God give us a new generation of apologists who are skilled in intellectual battle and equipped with a clear understanding of objections to our faith. Uh, I just thank God for Josh McDowell when I was a teenager. You know, he was already voluntarily going on the uh, biggest and sometimes most anti-Christian campuses uh, around the world to hold open debates, unscripted, with the professors there. And he learned to hold his ground and to debate about our reasonable faith. And, you know, we've also got uh, Ravi Zacharias, and I'm so happy that he has developed a training program so that uh, as he grows older, there are others that can step up and continue this same kind of ministry. We need this, and if God has called you and given you the kind of a mind that has a philosophical bent, then uh, I really hope that you'll give yourself to the academic discipline it will take to um, develop within yourself the mind of an apologist. An apologist uh, doesn't mean we apologize. It means you can give an answer. That's what that word means. And, you know, early Christianity was being slaughtered uh, and persecuted by the, the universal government of Rome. And one of the things that backed that off, there were quite a few factors, and they all hit simultaneously. But one of them was that very powerful thinkers rose up within Christianity and they began to explain the faith to people who had all kinds of misconceptions about what we believe. 
and they were able to, uh, to influence the influencers so that those who lead thought in cultures understand the Christian point of view, and it backed down a lot of, a lot of that intense persecution. So Paul finds himself all alone. He's got no support with him, and he is in this thought center for the whole world. And uh, he probably does not intend to engage the great Athenian philosophers of his day. He's just never seen such lostness. I mean, this, is, this whole city can't find any reference to truth about God. There's all kinds of things being said about the spirit world and about supernatural creatures. And, but Paul is looking for something that's accurate, and he finds nothing. There's just this fairy tale pantheon uh, of make-believe gods, and they have their, all the different little stories about them. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says, Paul's spirit was provoked. And that word means was made angry. He became emotionally moved at the spiritual plight of Gentile people in Athens. I mean, they had so much openness to truth, and they were spending so much effort being um, trying to find truth. Uh, it was their daily preoccupation was to discuss new truth and new ideas. And yet, with all of this effort being expended, they had no success. Instead, they were, as verse 16 says, they were given over to idols. And that word in the Greek uh, is probably better translated lush. It's, it's, a, it's like vegetation, that there were vines, lush vines growing everywhere, taking over the city. But instead of it being foliage growing on the sides of the building and, and vines wrapping all over the place, their vines were idols that were everywhere you turned, wrapping around the people. And the whole culture was wrapped around idolatry. And it, it made Paul angry. You know, he saw the circumstances that these people were trapped in, and it made him angry. And so verse 17 says, therefore he reasoned. Uh, and the Greek word reasoned is dialogue. He did not monologue them. He did not stand up on the, you know, on the streets and, and curse them for what they were doing and point out all their failures to them and, and rail at them like a prophet. He dialogued with them. He did it in three different places. It says he did it with the Jews, and I assume that means in the synagogues, and he did it out in the pagan worshiping places. When he saw Gentiles that were worshiping idols, Paul began to speak to them. Uh, and, you know, Sh Sherry and I were in Lhasa, Tibet, and we watched that whole uh, city just in dedication also to idolatry and the um, the walks, you know, the, the throng of people that would surround that city in basically a prayer walk and do it every day, swinging, um, swinging bells, and everything was repetition for them. And so they're doing circles, and they would pray a thousand times a day a prayer that simply said, I want a happy life, I want a happy life, I want a happy life. And uh, we just wanted to understand them. We didn't understand their language, and they didn't understand ours. So we went into their worship areas, and we just sat down among them, and we just sat there while they bowed all around us, and we watched grandmas 
stand up, kneel down, lay on their face, back to their knees, stand up. And I watched them do that 300 times. And I said, how many times a day do you do this? We found an interpreter, and, and it was some of them did it 300 times a day, and some of them did it 1,000 times every single day. So diligent, trying to find God and looking in entirely the wrong place. But we found that these people were wide open to us. I mean, they started loaning, uh, like they wanted to share their... Uh, their prayer mat with me. Their mats are slippery, so they can do that slide down, and they have these things they, they wear on their hands that are slick, so that when they go to, the, to their knees and then they prostate, prostrate themselves forward, um, they just slide forward there, and their faces go down and back up. And they were willing to share that with me. They wanted us to join them. You know, there's an openness among pagan people if you're there to dialogue and not to monologue them. So Paul was sharing. The Scripture said he was doing it every day. He was in the synagogue. He was in the idol-worshiping areas, and he was in the marketplace, you know, out of the church and into the marketplace. And that's where Christians need to be. He was there consistently, not one-off. Paul is trying every day to start a fire in Athens. He wants to release the gospel because he knows the power of it. And he knows that the gospel will open the kingdom of God to the city of Athens. And he is working hard to do it. As Paul is trying to engage ordinary people, some philosophers encounter him. The Epicureans and the Stoics had leaders there. And they listened to what Paul said. And some said, let's here, what does this, uh, the English says, what does this babbler want to say? And that word babblers pretty much means pseudo-intellectual. He thinks he's intellectual like us. But the thing was, what Paul was sharing in verse 19, we see their final uh, understanding of is, oh, this is foreign. This is foreign. It's not, it's not like us. It's not what we believe. And Paul recognized it being foreign was a barrier he needed to overcome in order to successfully plant truth in them. And then God opens the door. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That is like the inner sanctum of philosophical dialogue. And Paul steps up there, an open door, uh, so intimidating, you know, to be put before people. And you know that everybody there is is opposed, you know, they do not believe what you believe. But Paul understands, verse 22, you know, God is going to be there with him. Jesus told us, when you're in a circumstance like this, do not prepare your speech. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say at that moment. And we need to take courage and go for it when God opens doors for public discourse concerning the faith. And so verse 22, Paul stood up in the midst of them, and he began his, uh, his speech to them. And, you know, here we can really be grateful for the skill that was drilled into Paul as a student. I mean, someone has taught him how to formally stand up in the midst of people and engage a crowd forcefully. He is, he's been taught by a master teacher how to do public address, and he begins it. And the first step that Paul tries in verse 22 is to connect with them. He needs to bond 
with this audience. So he's not going straight to his message. He wants him to feel that we're all brothers together. We're on a spiritual search, that he is very much like them, not foreign. Uh, And so Paul begins, men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious. They take this as as a compliment, that he's telling them you are spiritual people. You are obviously searching spiritually, and he gives examples of it. You know, I look everywhere. You've got objects of worship all over the place. I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Wow, this is so genius. And Paul begins to, see, this is, this is I love this thought. In every culture, there are bridges to truth. I don't care how pagan it is or how antichrist it is, every culture in the world believes some things that are truth. And if you can find that truth and walk across the bridge of that truth, you can reach any people and bring them back to God's truth. These people knew that there was a chance that there was another God out there that they had never heard anything about. And Paul brilliantly says, I have come to connect to your existing worldview, you believe in an unknown God. And that's the first truth I want to bring you. I am here to represent that God to you. And Paul begins to lay down gospel truth. He knows truth will set them free if they can just hear the truth and receive it. And if it goes inside their heart, truth is going to do its work. And the first thing he tells them is there is one God. This uh, unknown God you've talked about, verse 24, Paul says, this God made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is one God. Uh, He is above all. They're not a pantheon of gods. There may be spirits, but there is one God. He made everything. He drills that nail down. That is uh, Israel's contribution to world religious thought the understanding that there is one great God, the maker of all things. The second truth Paul gives them, surrounded by idols, is that this one God is above imitation. He is so far above any imitation God that is made by man. And you know that is a conflicting thought. He says, he does not dwell in temples, made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Here's his third, third truth. This God is the mutual source of life for all of us. We are one people. And so Paul's letting them see, I'm not a foreigner, I'm a human, and all humans. Uh, see, they had, they had beliefs uh, they had beliefs in localized deities. They, they had beliefs in some gods live on the mountains. If you're in the mountain, you better talk to that god. Some gods are in the sea. If you're in the sea, you'd better deal with uh, Poseidon and other gods of the sea. And Paul says there's one God. He made us all, and we're accountable to him. He, verse 25, he gives all, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made us from one blood, every nation of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. So Paul is elevating God 
Fourth truth, he is sovereign. The purpose of God will be done. God has limited every nation, and he's lifting up the one great big God. Now he leads them to another truth, and he says in verse 27 that the purpose of all worship and all creation is that we must all seek and find him whose creation we are. So he says, God did all of this in our life. He's given us time and a purpose to live so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, although he's not far from each one of us. And now he quotes, interesting, not the scripture. He quotes their uh, poets. He does not quote Hebrew scripture because these people don't believe in Hebrew scripture, but he quotes their own poets who they believe and quote all the time. And he is looking for uh, sources of truth in their own culture. And he says, we are the offspring of God. In verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said. And he quotes again, for we are also his offspring. Verse 29, since we are the offspring of God, and now he, he shows them that as the offspring of God, that's another truth, that idolatry is actually an insult to the great God. We should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and by man's devising. And truly, now Paul calls them to repent. And you cannot preach the gospel without a call to repent. And Paul can't leave these people just with happy thoughts that we are all the children of God. You can believe that when you are still lost and on your way to judgment from God. You must repent. Whatever your culture is, wherever you're from, if you're highborn or lowborn, if you're educated or you can't even read, you must repent for the sins in your life. And so Paul lays down that plank in his gospel presentation. He's got momentum going, and now he is pushing through and he's bringing them to the point of decision. We are his offspring Idolatry is an insult to him. Verse 31, God will judge every one of us. And now he's going to bring in Jesus. They have never heard of Jesus. And Paul says, God has assured us that we can be, we can be given assurance in the judgment by this man, Jesus, who's been raised from the dead. And when Paul lays down the resurrection, which is central to Christian doctrine, it is so crucial in our proclamation, and that finally strikes a spark. He has been having people dialogue with him, and they've debated him, and some have, have kind of said, I don't know if I believe this or not, but there's no fire. There's no fighting back. There's no, nothing's caught fire yet. He wants to see somebody accept it, and he, he knows that means others are going to reject it. But until he can bring it, you know, he's got to bring it up. Until the, the pressure can build to come to that moment of decision and that moment be forced, and everybody has to face the, the necessity to decide about Jesus. And as he lays that before them, he feels the conflict in the air. But he knows also that he has struck home. He got a reaction. Verse 32 says, some people believed it because he, 
because of the resurrection. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again. Speak about this. Verse 34, however, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, one of the philosophers, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. A core of intellectuals from the Areopagus entered the kingdom of God that day. Paul had harvest. So much we could learn. There's just so much we can take off with thinking about. Because, you know, some people get the sense that uh, all ages are the same and that we are, you know, we're kind of in a Joshua generation. We need to go take the cities. And then other people say, well, no, we're more like Daniel's generation. We are already in exile in a pagan land. Uh, We're not just calling the people back to the Lord. They don't know the Lord anymore. This whole generation has risen up who are so cut off from the truth that we were raised with. They don't even know this truth. It does not inform their thinking at all. Paul is dealing with pagan people who are philosophers. They are highly educated, and he is able to engage them, but he refuses, and this is really important, you can't just stroke culture. We can't just bond with culture and say, see, Christians are just like all of you. There has to be that point. And when when Paul, he's got them going. And then when he turns them and he says, your idolatry is an abomination to the Lord. It angers the mighty God. We are all going to be judged and you'll be judged. And that's one of the things that you'll be judged for. But we can have hope through Jesus, and we know we can have hope because Jesus was dead and God raised him physically back to his body alive from the dead, and that's how we know it is true. And when he pushed it all the way to the end and drew the line and said, now cross, if you want to enter God's kingdom and if you want to receive what Jesus has for you, you must cross this line. And once he drew that line, you could decide it, and you could push away from it. But he, he knew he could not just talk nice to these guys. He's a trinket to them. He's today's interesting discussion. He needs to drive the seed into their heart. In some of these hearts, it will, it will immediately produce fruit. In others, it will produce fruit later. Others will never accept the gospel. But his job was to sow that seed and call for repentance. And some accepted and some rejected. Paul was successful in Athens, and we can be successful too. We just have to have the guts to do what he did. And God will anoint us um, to stand and deliver the message of Christ. Mm, I want to see your generation. I want to see my generation reached. I want to see the nations I live in receiving the gospel, and knowing the truth about Jesus. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode of Thread. Please send me your your questions. If you've got anything you'd like for us to cover on the podcast, just let me know, chuck at quinley.com. And if you would give us some help, go to quinley.com slash iTunes and leave a comment on the iTunes network. We would really, really appreciate it. That'll help more people know about the show. God bless you. Until next time, see you later on Thread. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Log on to Quinley.com.
Thank <laughs> you.